0: I uh, I, first. Okay. I have a um, I have a seventeen-year-old who's kind of a sneakerhead. He's thinking about coming to Mizzou here next year, and he yeah. uh convinced me to get these shoes, and also I, I like shoes too, so uh, I was more I was happy to oblige. <laughs> um, I'm Robbie Griggs. I teach theology at Covenant Seminary. The reason I'm here is because uh, your RUF campus minister David was one of my students, and uh. uh I, I love David, and so I was delighted to be able to come and speak to you guys tonight. Um, I've got deep connections to Columbia. I graduated from Mizzou 20 years ago, give or take. Um, lived in the Frederick building uh, my, the, the semester before I graduated, because I got married the semester that I, got, that I graduated. So my wife is a Mizzou grad. I have a degree in philosophy and a degree in finance from Mizzou, which is a weird combo, I know um but it served me well uh and actually i became a christian at mizzou um i was uh just you know lost when i came here and uh got involved in a bible study and um yeah just changed my life so a lot of really wonderful memories uh, about this place and just excited to be here with you guys and um yeah share a little bit from god's word one of the things I want to say about our passage tonight, we're going to be looking at John 10, which is a famous passage. It's the Good Shepherd passage. Um, is that it, There's a lot of weird stuff in it, actually. <laughs> um, it, it, it raises some interesting and deep questions. And really what I'm wanting to do is just explore some of those questions with you guys tonight and talk a little bit about what I think they mean. And let me pray for us before we dive in. God, I thank you for these students and for this time together. And I pray, Lord, that you would be near to us and uh, ready our hearts and minds to receive what you have for us from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, one of the things I've been thinking about a little bit as I, you know, as my boys, I've got three boys. They're 17, 15, and 12. And um, as they've gotten older, I've been reflecting on what kind of house we have and one of the themes that has jumped out to me is that our house is not really a safe place (laughs) and what i mean by that is um, these guys are very sharp and you cannot get away with anything Um, we were riding home from church uh, a couple months ago and um, my eldest son had a girlfriend at the time and the the youngest son was asking him about this young lady that he had been on a date with and my middle son uh, pipes in and says well when I have a girlfriend I'm gonna do this and the oldest says "Um, yeah in about you know 2,000 light years when you have a girlfriend and the middle son says boy light years are a measure of distance not time and everybody just goes, and that's a huge burn in our in our in our family. So everybody just goes, and the oldest just shuts up because he knows, like, he's done. Like, what's he going to say to that? Uh, a few few years prior to that, I remember being downstairs and hearing from the bedroom upstairs, uh, "Search your feelings. You don't want to hurt your brother." And uh, I hear a loud crash. And uh, a tooth has gone through a lip and we're headed, we're headed to the uh, urgent care. Um, a, another classic one, my wife, um, my wife asked one of the boys one time, you know, one of, one of them. A rule we learned from some other um, friends who have boys, and this is one just to tuck away in the back of your mind if you're ever a parent, is um, if, if the one who's hurt comes to you it's okay. If the one who's hurt doesn't come, it's probably bad. Okay? So if the one who's hurt doesn't come, you should go immediately. Well, anyway, um, my, the, the one who was hurt was talking to my wife, so he was okay. And she asked the offending brother. I won't say which one it was. She said, why did you hurt your brother? And he said, because he was vulnerable. Vulnerable. <laughs> That horrible. So that's where I'm coming from. And the thing that it, you know, I've been thinking about is, you know, even our families are not safe places. Um, maybe for you, um, as it was the case for me, especially our family has not been a safe place. And if even our families aren't safe, where is safety to be found? In our passage tonight, Jesus is talking about where ultimate safety is found. But as with the other I Am statements, he's doing it in a really weird way. A way that caused confusion in his day and that can leave us scratching our heads. After all... If we look at the end of the passage, we see a very mixed response to what Jesus is saying. At the end, after he's talked about this, I am the door, and I am the good shepherd, and you've got thieves and robbers, and you've got hired hands and you've got wolves, right? After he's done all this talking, this is the response of the people who were listening to what He was saying, Verse 19. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words, many of them because of these words, many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So, to see what Jesus is saying in our passage, we've got to do a little bit of digging. And his uh, contemporaries needed to do some digging as well. And I suppose I should go ahead and just read the passage so that we're all on the same page with this. So I'm going to do that real quick. John 10, and I'm going to start, I'm going to start not exactly where the story begins, but a little bit further down, find it here, sorry, there we go, so starting off in, um, In verse 6, Jesus is talking and it says, This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what He was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before Me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by Me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have, have life and have it abundantly. All this means. We've got three points for us to look at. The first one is an orientation point, and it's this this place is not safe and we can't manage. Second one is a deepening point. All right, what is the true nature of the vulnerability that Jesus is talking about? And the third one is the resolution, and it has to do with how and why Jesus is truly good. Now, the place we need to start is the underlying assumption of the picture or story that Jesus. Presents And it's pretty simple. It's this place is not safe and we can't manage. This starts to become clear if we consider what the major characters in this story represent. We'll start with the bad guys, which fall into two camps. First, you have the thieves and the robbers. Jesus says simply in verse 8, All who came before me are thieves and robbers. Now, in the context of a story about sheep, Thieves and robbers represent a hostile threat. They want to take the sheep and use them for their own purposes. They don't care about the sheep, they only care about what they can get in exchange for the sheep. So, if the people who are Jesus' followers are the sheep, these guys represent people who want to use them. How so? Well, earlier in the story, Jesus uses the well-known fact that the sheep know the voice of their shepherd to highlight His teaching. And so what He's saying is that the thieves and robbers are like Jesus, they're teachers, but they don't care about the people they're teaching. Rather, they're scammers. They're telling a story that is meant to hoodwink the people they're talking to So that they can use them for what they want. The stories they tell, the teachings they deliver, are not really for our good. The primary interest of the thieves and the robbers is what they can get out of this. So that's one category. Jesus is talking about sheep. He's saying, I'm the shepherd. And we've got thieves and robbers. And the thieves and robbers are really people who are teachers like Jesus, but they're not really interested in the sheep. They're interested in getting out of the sheep what they can get. The other category of bad guys in this story are the hired hands. And Jesus talks about the hired hands in verses 12 and 13. He says, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep." So, unlike the thieves and the robbers, these guys are not scammers. They're not scammers. They work for the owner of the sheep, and they pretend to care about the sheep. But the thing is, they don't have any skin in the game. They work not primarily for the good of the sheep, but for the wage that they get from the owner. That's the difference between the thieves thieves and robbers and the hired hands. The hired hands don't own the sheep. What they're working for is their paycheck. And the proof of this is what happens when the wolf comes. When the wolf comes, the hired hands flee, and they leave the sheep to get eaten. Again, in comparison to the shepherd, the owner, Jesus, these guys are teachers and religious leaders. But unlike the thieves and robbers, they are not overtly hostile. They are the enemy within. They work for the owner. They say the right things. They do the right things. But when their commitment is tested by predatory forces, they prove to be hypocrites. They say they're loyal to the owner, they say they care for the sheep, but when severe danger comes, their actions prove otherwise. In the end, they're bad guys like the thieves and the robbers because they're working not for the sheep, but for what they can get out of the sheep. In this case, a paycheck from the owner. Now, you might be wondering, what is this wolf? (laughs) right so you could see why a story like this would cause people to say what on earth is this guy talking about um, so we've talked about the bad guys now we have to ask the question what is the wolf well it's kind of hard to know actually um, if you read all the commentators who talk about this they're kind of two big camps and it's really difficult to know exactly what the wolf represents it could be that the wolf simply represents those non-individual forces that threaten the sheep it could be things like severe societal persecution it could be things like disease Um, the wolf and the reason the wolf is different from the bad guys is because the wolf eats the sheep because that's what wolves do right wolves eat sheep because they want to have food Um, So the wolf's actions are not the same as the actions of the thieves and the robbers. They're not the same as the hired hand. They're not lying or hypocritical. They're just being wolves. The wolf is simply hostile. So in whatever form it might take, the wolf could represent the sort of structural or non-individual evils that are a feature of the world we live in and that threaten to pick God's people off one by one and scatter his flock. Uh, we've seen this um, in, with respect to COVID-19, uh, the virus that causes COVID-19. The virus has no personal aim, and so unlike humans, it can be neither hostile nor hypocritical, but it divides communities, it divides people nonetheless. So the wolf could just be things like natural evil or societal persecution. And Jesus is saying that when those kinds of things come, And when they really bear down on the hired hand, the hired hand splits. The wolf could also represent things like the naked hostility of the enemies of God's people. So in this case, Jesus might have in mind something like the Roman Empire, which doesn't care for Israel, doesn't care for Jesus' followers. Rather, the way the Roman Empire thought of of the Jews and also of uh, Jesus and his followers with was that they were simply a resource to be consumed or they were living in a territory to be conquered and ruled. In either case, whether the wolf represents the structural evils of the world or the hostilities of the enemies of God's people, the main point is seen in contrast to the good shepherd, to Jesus. Unlike the hired hand, Jesus fights for the sheep. Of course, a shepherd is only a shepherd in relation to sheep, so before we take a look at Jesus, we have to ask the question, why does he call his followers sheep? What does it mean to be a sheep? Well, Jesus makes it pretty clear that the sheep are God's people because he says earlier that they're the ones who listen to God's voice and they're the ones who follow. But why are they sheep? Well... One obvious point from this whole story is that sheep are vulnerable. Sheep go with shepherds because sheep need shepherds to survive. And so part of what Jesus is saying is that the environment that we are all in is not safe. The environment that His people are in is not safe. They face bad guys and wolves. I think another reason that Jesus calls His people sheep is because, frankly, sheep are notorious for being dumb and skittish. <laughs> He's saying something about what it means to be human. Um, when we lived in England, I, I, so I did a PhD in England, um, and we lived there for three years, and we ran into sheep all the time. And one spring, my wife, my three boys, our West Highland white terrier, Wendy, and I were on a long weekend in the Lake District. And we took Wendy everywhere with us. It was one of those things where we stayed in a place where you could have a dog, and everywhere we went, dogs were welcome. And so she went with us on all our stuff. Well, one day, we would, were going to we go on a hike and go out and see this old parish church that was near uh, one of the lakes in the Lake District. And I think this church was like maybe from the 14th century, so it was kind of a thing to see. And we're on this hike, and we're walking along, and we've got Wendy off of her leash. And when we're coming back, the other path from the from the church we came upon a pasture where there were about a hundred sheep grazing and before I could do anything because the dog was not on the leash she shot underneath the fence row and was after these sheep and Wendy's about like she's about like this big (laughs) she's about 15 pounds and I thought, oh no, these are big sheep and there are a lot of them. They're going to band together and crush our poor little windy puppy girl baby doggy. <laughs> I start imagining the scene as we huddle over her mangled and bloody body. My little boys weeping for our beloved family pet whom we got in a little North Yorkshire town called Thirsk just a year and a half earlier story the reason we got the dog i was I, I, when we were in england i walked my boys to school every day and my middle son loves animals and um, we had had a dog before we moved who tragically died before we moved to england um, and we didn't have an animal in the house at this time and we're walking along and he found a little butterfly and the butterfly had a broken wing and he he had this idea that we're going to nurse this butterfly back to health and he gives me the butterfly and i went home and i was like. Said to my wife, "We've got to get this boy an animal to take care of. Like this, this is mission critical. So that's the reason why we got Wendy." Um, well, instead of her getting crushed and mauled by this herd of sheep, we watched amazed as our little fifteen-pound dog ran those sheep around and around that pasture, <laughs> herding them from one corner to another. And she did this for like she did this for about fifteen minutes, and it was incredible. Like she would. She would run around them and yap and bark at them and get them all into the corner and then she would get them all situated and then they would leak out and then they would run and then she would run and she would, you know, yap at certain places and then she would herd them into the other corner and she just ran them around in a circle around this thing for about 15 minutes and her tail was straight up, her tongue wagged in the wind, she yapped with delight as she ran this dumb flock around purely for sport. Eventually, because she's smart and sheep are dumb, Wendy got bored. And she came and heeded our call and came under the fence and sat before us so that we could put her leash on. Well, Jesus calls his people sheep to highlight our vulnerability. The place we live is not safe, and we cannot manage it on our own at all. That's why he calls us sheep. The wolf comes, one of us dies and we scatter. Or the dog comes and runs us around in circles for hours. So we get it, Jesus. Human beings are vulnerable. God's people are vulnerable. This place is not safe and we can't manage. That much is obvious. But what Jesus is saying here is deeper and more troubling than the mere fact of our vulnerability. And we begin to see this clearly when we pay attention to what he says about himself. The first image Jesus uses of himself is a door. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The way to safety for vulnerable sheep is Jesus. He is the door. He is the one through whom we find rest. But pay atten- if we pay attention, careful attention to the language, and Jesus was a master storyteller, and storytellers don't waste words, right? If you pay attention to the language, you'll see a couple things. Notice he says, all who came before him are thieves and robbers. That is, For anyone who thinks that His teaching will provide safety for human beings in general or God's people in particular, he is either self-deluded or simply wrong. That's what Jesus is saying. In other words, Jesus is saying not just I'm the door, I'm the only door. There are no others. If you want to be safe, you have to pass through me. But what would it mean to be safe? What would it mean to find pasture only through Jesus? Well, I'm uh, going to illustrate with a story about Jeopardy. Anybody watch Jeopardy? I Okay, I asked I'm old, okay? And I asked some of my students today who are not who are just out of college. I was like do the kids watch Jeopardy these days? They're like, yeah, they're gonna get it. I was like, okay, all right, I'll, I'll stick with the, uh, I'll stick with this illustration. I, if I, I didn't ask my, 17 year old because he would have been like, Dad, just don't be boring and stupid. You know, <laughs> like that's all you got to do. Just don't be boring and stupid. You know. Yeah. Um, my wife, as I said, is a Mizzou grad, and she works in finance. And um, right now, she's working from home, from our bedroom, in fact. And at the end of her work day, um, she c- likes to come down and watch Jeopardy to relax. So my two younger boys and I do this with her. My 17-year-old is off hanging out with his friends or working, um, and we do this pretty regularly. We're a bit behind on our viewing, but where we are right now is kind of amazing because there's this guy named Matt Amodio who's a PhD student, and he has won Jeopardy 18 days in a row. And he's won over half a million dollars, which is the third highest total in Jeopardy! history. Now, obviously Matt's really smart and he knows a lot of stuff, okay? Because you don't win 18 times in a row without being really smart and knowing a lot of stuff. But the thing that makes Matt a really good player is that he is really good at managing risk. If you watch those 18 episodes and you watch how he plays, He starts out very aggressively in the first round where the risks and the trade-offs are very low because the numbers are lower, right? And so if he gets a daily double in the first round, he always goes all in, okay? No matter where he is. And usually by the time he gets to the end of the first round, he's got two, three, four times more than his nearest opponent. So that strategy is working for him. Um, In double jeopardy, though, he, he changes. When he gets to double jeopardy and the values are higher, he starts to take smaller and fewer risks, and he does that because the trade-offs are higher. So, if he gets if he gets a a daily double, he might bet four thousand or two thousand or six thousand, and his total might be twenty thousand at that point, right? So he takes smaller risks. Um, the show we watched most recently was out of character but still smart because in the second round he got a daily double and he went all in and that was because he had a really good challenger. He had a really good player and she was slightly ahead of him and he was like, I think, and also he probably was like, I've already won a half million dollars. Let's see, Let's see if I can keep this thing going. And so he goes, all, he goes all in and he gets it right. And the funny thing is that when they get to Final Jeopardy, um, he has exactly twice the amount that she has. And so he has to bet at least a dollar to win if she bets everything, right? Well, he, that's what he does. And that was the, his lowest final Jeopardy bet of the 18-time uh, run. And she missed the question and lost it all. So it was sad. It was sad. But here's the thing. Matt Amodio is an amazing risk taker and he is going to lose. One of these days, he's going to lose. And he's going to lose because he is human. He's going to lose because vulnerability is a feature and not a bug of human existence. And even the very best risk-takers lose in the game of life, either figuratively, or literally. We lose because we are at times dumb and skittish. Or we lose simply because we are mortal and we die. Even the best players lose. But I I don't want Matt to lose. I want him to win every time. We were so stressed out. In that 18th episode I mean we were just on the edge of our seats because we wanted him to win and we wanted him to keep on winning and I think that's because in life we don't like vulnerability we don't like risk we don't accept it I mean we make peace with it but ultimately we don't accept it we want to keep on winning because The safety we seek, the victory we seek, is not temporary. It is eternal. So when Jesus says He is the door, this is what He's saying. He's saying He is the way not to the management of our vulnerability, but He is the way to the removal of it. He is the way to ultimate safety. And we start to see this really clearly as He talks more about Himself. Unlike the hired hand, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He does this to please God, who he calls Father. He says, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. And this is where things get really interesting. Jesus' life is His own not only to give, but also to reclaim. He says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that unlike us, His life is not ultimately vulnerable. Rather. He has the authority over His own life to lay it down and to take it up. There are no robbers who can steal it. There are no hired hands who can endanger it. There are no wolves who can snatch it. And what that means is that Jesus is the door. He is the Good Shepherd because He is the God of life and death. He is the One who doesn't just manage risk, but takes it away. He's the one who's capable of leading us beyond our vulnerability to a place of true safety, a place where evil is no more, a place where death cannot touch us. That's what He's saying. He loves His people. His expression of that love is that He gives His life for them. His expression of that love is that he takes his life up again. And he does that so that we can be safe. I don't know what experiences you have of the fundamental vulnerability of human life. It's hard to miss. We have to actively avoid not, you know, avoid it. we, we have to we have to do things not to see it. But it's there if we have the courage to face it. One of the stories, and I'm going to end, I'm going to end here. Um, one of the stories of this in my own life has to do with my youngest son. Um, George, his name's George, born 12, about 12 years ago in July. Not long after he was born, nurses noticed that he was not turning pink the way he should. That's a bad sign. They ran some tests and discovered that he had a heart defect. Um, I don't know if we have any nurses or people training to, in the health professions or going to be doctors in here, but he had transposition of the greater vessels, which is where basically your heart is an open circuit, right? So that de- deox- oxygenated blood can flow through, gets deoxygenated, goes through, goes out, right? Well, his plumbing was reversed so that his heart was a closed circuit. And what that meant was that his. Um, blood was not going to be getting oxygenated so his oxygen levels were going to start going down eventually go into cardiac arrest and die so they figured this out and i'm sitting there with my wife in the delivery room probably about an hour and a half after she had given birth and we just listened as the helicopter took him away (laughs) just listened as he was flying off to another hospital where they could monitor him and potentially do emergency surgery at that point, I'd been a Christian a little over 10 years and a pastor for four, and I i don't think I've ever been so scared in my life. People came and visited us while George was in the hospital before the surgery, and sometimes that was a comfort, and sometimes it wasn't. One thing that was really hard is that people would come and they would talk about the prob- probability. I mean, everybody can do the research, right? So you just go on, you Google transposition, you and, and you start looking at all the stuff, and eventually you get to the probabilities, right? And when you do that, what you learn is that this there's a 90, 90% success rate for fixing this heart defect, which is really good. And I remember there was a guy <laughs> at the hospital who was telling me this, and I hadn't had much sleep, and I was not in a very good mood. And... And I was, when he was telling me this, I thought, here's the thing, man. I didn't say this. I, God gave me self-control. <laughs> uh, not to say this, but I was like, bro, I don't think you know how probabilities work. Because right now, on this side of this surgery, we don't know whether or not he's in the 90% or the 10%. So it is absolutely irrelevant to me what the percentages are as the father of this little boy. What, where, where, you know, where did we find comfort? Well, where did, we, where did we look for safety? Well, we knew that our ultimate hope for George was not in whether or not he made it through that surgery. Because we knew that whether now or later, George would die someday. We all will. So what do we do? We put our hope in Jesus. And what I mean by that is we just said, Lord, he, he, You've given to Him to us. He belongs to You. We pray that You would save Him. We pray that You would give the doctors skill that You would bring Him through this. And yet in the end, He belongs to You. His life is Yours. And so we put our hope in Jesus who tells us that whether in life or in death, whether in misery or or delight, He is our Good Shepherd who promises to lead and guide us to safety. Now, I recognize that this passage doesn't answer all the questions that come. But what it does say really clearly is that Jesus is concerned with ultimate things. And He is concerned with our ultimate safety. And if we're looking for safety, He says, you can find it in me. There's a passage from the Apostle Paul's second letter to Timothy that has always amazed me in this respect. Um, And this is the last thing I'll say. Paul is in prison. He's awaiting death. His enemies have done everything they can to harm him. Some of his closest friends have abandoned him. And this is what he says. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I don't know what kind of definition Paul has of safety, but it's not my normal definition. So, I guess the thing I want to leave you with is that question, where is real safety to be found? Where is it? And Jesus says, if you want to find real safety, it's in me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your care for us. I pray, Lord, that you would help us um, as we ponder what you say about who you are and we think about all of the ramifications of that for our life and for the lives of our friends and family and our peers. Lord, would you help us? ask these things for your sake. Amen.